Associated, a podcast making venture capital more accessible. My name is Francesca and I'm joined today by Petra. Hello, Petra. Hi, Francesca. How are you? I am well, thank you. I'm very, very, very excited to have our guests uh, on this evening. I know. And we have another round of two guests, Double Trouble. Yes, exactly. So we have Magda and Ganita from Speed Invest. Hi, ladies. Hi, Francesca. Hi, Petra. Hi, both. Where are you both at the moment? Both Gunita and I are based in London. We've been actually locked in here since the very beginning of lockdown from, from early March. However, recently I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to also visit my colleagues in Berlin and also to, to see my family in Krakow afterwards. So very, very happy about that. But you gave us a little bit of a clue there of seeing your colleagues in Berlin. For those who don't know Speed Invest too well, would you be able to give the Speed Invest 101? So yeah, so Speed Invest, what we are today is a pan-European seed fund. And seed is at our core and we are a very distributed team. So we have offices across Vienna, London, Munich, Berlin, and San Francisco. And we make investments across all geographies within Europe. And we also have uh, pockets to invest into emerging markets and also the U.S. And we are a generalist fund uh, with specialist teams. I work in the fintech investment team and Magda works in the network effects team. We also have teams focused on deep tech, industrial tech, consumer tech, uh, which incorporates healthcare more broadly. We're a very international investor and yeah. we do invest on a pan-European basis. So although our headquarters are in Austria, uh, we invest very much across geographies. Um, so, so for example, uh, we made recent investments in Primer, uh, which is based in the UK. We invested in Luco in France. We invest in Kobe in Spain um, and just in the fintech team. So I, I would say we're very much an international investor. Got it. Thanks for giving that overview. That was super helpful. And I'm, and I'm sure really informative for listeners. I have to ask because I'm German and I think there's always like a bit of like a friendly rivalry between the Austrians and the Germans. How would you characterize Austrian tech or like the Austrian tech landscape? Because I think when people, you know, think of sort of the, you know, the DAF region, the first country is immediately Germany in terms of like the venture ecosystem. So how would you, yeah, how, how would you characterize Austria within the tech and startup scene? I believe it's one of the markets that it's not immediately associated as a tech hub. However, there are a lot of interesting companies being created every day, every year. Um, examples include companies like Fantastic that was acquired by Adidas, Spock, where Speed Invest led the seed round that was acquired by Shipstead, or most recently companies like GoStudent that raised a, a big round from Leftlane and DN Capital. Very cool. And I'm curious to know what your backgrounds are and, and how with those skills that you developed, you not only are able to scout great companies, but support the portfolio going forward. Okay, sure. I would say my background is really a mixture of startups, banking and VC. So I actually started my career at, at Deutsche Bank in the uh, corporate banking coverage team. Uh, basically, we were responsible for the um, corporate treasury suite of FTSE 100 and FTSE 250 clients, so cross-selling products to the corporate treasurers. 
After that, I moved over into the corporate strategy team at Deutsche Bank, where I worked on confidential management board projects that helped guide the bank with its strategic thinking. While I was at Deutsche Bank, I founded my own startup called Showcased. And this is something I was really keen to develop, even though I had absolutely no background in the tech space. I got involved with leading a product management community and helping them expand from San Francisco to London, which helped me build my own network and also learn from the best product managers. Uh, I realized, for example, the importance of building a product that services a need that customers are going to be willing to pay for. And basically the process of getting this off the ground was really amazing for me. And what got me really interested in uh, the venture capital space. And so I moved over into venture capital initially at Atomico where I focused on fundraising for the um, circa $1 billion fund. I think it was 850 or something at the end. And I think over there, I found myself really gravitating towards what was happening in the deal meetings. Um, and from there, there, basically, that's how I transitioned over to Speed Invest, uh, working in the investment team uh, focused specifically on fintech. Very cool. And um, we actually haven't interviewed anyone that focuses on the fundraising side so just to be clear that's where you interact with potential limited partners that are going to um put money into the fund is that right yes atomical i was involved with fundraising so basically working with limited partners uh to get them to invest money into the fund so that this could then be used to to support our investments into portfolio companies Cool. And why did you decide to move over to um, the investing side? Yeah. So I think for me, it was working on my own startup that um, really made me realize how difficult it is to be an entrepreneur, but also really inspired me to help get other startups off the ground. Because I realized that there are so many startups that try to get their startup off the ground and don't succeed. And I was looking specifically into seed funds, because if you look at the funnel, uh, the seed stage is where the largest volume of startups lie in the funnel before you go from seed to series A to series B. A lot of startups drop off in the middle. And so at the seed stage, you have a large number of startups. And um, I did a lot of research on seed funds. Um, how do you think like a seed investor and how do you get into seed funds? And for me, that sounded like something that would uh, resonate really well with my passions and my interests. Okay, so can you tell me a bit more about your background before starting your career at Deutsche and how that, you know, got you where you are today, how those passions and kind of interests influenced you um, to where you are now? My background is actually um, an interesting one. Up until the age of 13, I used to move every two to three years. Um, so I was, I was born in India where I spent the first few years of my life. I lived across um, four different cities there. Um, and then geographically on the map, I then moved to Singapore. Uh, I lived there for three years. Um, actually was there when the, when the SARS epidemic happened, a, a pandemic broke out. And yes, yeah, so I experienced COVID once before. And um, after, after Singapore, I moved over to Turkey. I lived there for two years. And after that, I was in, uh, moved over to London. And I think growing up around the world got me interested in what is the difference between the economies of these various different countries as well. Um, and that's kind of what led me to doing my, my undergrad degree was economics and my master's in economics for development. And one thing I found is that the topic that I was most interested in reading and writing about was basically at the intersection of 
more like financial services, technology and impact as a virtue of my background um, and my interest in what was happening at that time. So um, actually, in, um, it was around when I was in 10th grade that um, the, the financial crisis was happening. And I, I wrote about the, what caused the financial crisis and, you know, what, what made, um, uh, what were the factors that, that <laughs> I did this. The like other grade. people writing about probably a lot softer subjects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was... Um, uh, yeah, I think other people are probably writing about, about other things. Um, yeah, and then uh, during my undergrad, I found myself gravitating more towards the tech side of things. So I actually wrote my undergrad dissertation on what makes companies go viral. So basically looking at um, small to medium-sized enterprises um, and, and what causes them to grow rapidly. Um, and I found that it was the founding team, so the presence of uh, the management team, uh, let me encapsulate it this way, the founder mindset. So having founder mindset still in the company is what really helps startups take off. So so I noticed the importance of the founding team early on. And Magda, how about you? What's your story getting into VC? Yeah, my story of getting into venture is definitely a little bit unusual. Um, I started my first business at the age of 19. It was chain of language schools um, with a digital online learning a platform for blue-collar workers. Um, I ran the business simultaneously while studying at university. Um, I studied um, linguistics with a major in um, Swedish language and German. Um, and at the same time, I was also studying economics with a major in, in logistics. I ran the business during my studies. It was a really intense time. Still no clue how, how did I manage to Yeah, juggle. I have no idea how you did it. <laughs> so yeah. impressive. And how many staff did you have? We had 50 full-time employees. Goodness. Goodness. So I really, really had to very quickly grow up. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, um, after five years, um, I actually received an acquisition offer from a Dutch entrepreneur who was investing in Poland, who um, gave me an offer of acquiring 100% of the business and uh, couldn't, couldn't refuse at the time. Um, so I sold the business. And after the time, I was headhunted by one of the largest travel holdings in, in Central Eastern Europe to run a spin-off company. For them, the business was called Plyhacks.com, and it was focused on um, combining low-cost airlines into one itinerary. So basically combining different airlines and creating new connections. Um, I ran the business for a couple of years. After that time, however, I increasingly started to get involved in the startup ecosystem in Poland, and I became totally fascinated by how old school industries are getting transformed from insurance industry to construction industry. And I just couldn't help myself, but try to figure out, okay, how can I do this full time? How can I work with startups full time? And at that time, I realized that um, I wanted to move to London to accelerate my learning and to, to pursue my career in venture capital. Did you move here without uh, an existing role already and you just sort of said, I'm going to move to London and then apply from here? Or did you move with, with a job? Yeah, no. So I, I didn't have a job. I, I came here for the weekend and basically stayed three months um, applying to all different venture funds, trying to really hustle my way through. I saw this week a tweet on Twitter 
uh, where someone asked how to how to get into venture, and they said there were there were three routes. One was to go to uh, investment banking and work really really hard. Second was to go to Harvard, Stanford, or Oxbridge and apply to a VC fund, and that there was a third way, which is crawl through the window. <laughs> and I would say that probably summarizes my getting into venture um, journey. <laughs> Amazing. So which window did you crawl into? So initially, when I moved here, I really didn't know anyone. How I did my transition was to join Cedars, which is a crowdfunding platform. What it allowed me to do is to really get to know the ecosystem inside out and build a, a relevant network of connections, founders, and, and investors. Looking back, I think it was an, an important step um, as this exposure really allowed me to, to learn to differentiate how great and how excellent looks like as, as we were mainly working with already mature businesses. After one and a half years, I saw the opportunity at SpeedInvest Network FX team, and um, I decided to, to join. I can really resonate with this call through the window thing. Sweet. Yeah. Did you, what window did you crawl through, Granita? <laughs> <laughs> uh, although I did work in banking and I did do my master's in Oxford, um, I felt like I was... <laughs> Oh, hang on, hang on. <laughs> Are you really saying that you're crawling through the window with those two things on TV? I did not work in investment banking and I found it really, really difficult actually trying to get into VC investing, even though I was already at Atomico um, on the fundraising side. Um, and all the recruiters I spoke to um, would tell me that I haven't worked in M&A. I have not um, got that investment banking experience. Um, they I don't know, probably didn't care about my master's. And frankly, um, I, I worked in a startup, but it was part-time. And so they were not sort of recognizing um, the experience or things I had done in terms of um, being relevant to forming an investment thesis and to investing in startups. So the way I got into Speed Invest was I knew a lot of the good seed funds that were out there. Um, and, and Speed Invest was, was one of the ones that, uh, you know, Atomico also recommended. And so I reached out on LinkedIn to the, the, the HR and talent um, people, not just at Speed Invest, but at a lot of different seed funds. Um, and Speed Invest actually um, was one of the ones that got back to me. A couple of them did and didn't have roles available, but Speed Invest got back to me. They sort of created this role, which didn't really exist because they weren't actually hiring at the moment, but they were interested. So yeah, I really had to try and persuade um, VCs to sort of be interested in, in my background. Yeah, I find that perplexing because both of you are founders, both of you are clearly passionate about innovation. And I mean, especially in seed investing from what I learned when I was at Playfair and also speaking to others, you know, the M&A level of due diligence that you do um, if you were an investment bank, doesn't really apply to your current roles. But do correct me if I'm I'm wrong. Um, is that the case with your experience at Speed Invest? So, so I didn't work in M&A, but I do think that the M&A kind of what I understand that you do in M&A is nothing to do with what you do in our job. I think it speaks to 
partly also like the volume of roles that are available at the seed stage um, and at, at, in VC in, in, in London in particular. Um, I think that there's so few roles that are available and so many people who are interested in getting into VC that it, it becomes difficult to also know about, how, how, about these roles and how to find these roles in the first place. For me, like coming as an for me, I felt very much an outsider to the tech space, um, especially when I was firstly working on the startup. I felt very much an outsider, but even having worked on the startup, I came very much as an outsider to the VC industry. Um, and so for me to find out about, about things, all I knew was you can try and go through recruiters, but seed fund roles are not really advertised through recruiters. It's very difficult to even find out where to start. Um, and so I did a lot of like cold calling, trying to um, find people within the network, basically. But um, yeah, it was difficult to find these jobs. Great. But I'm quite keen to bring on to the topic of your specific sectors, actually. And um, are there any areas in particular within those that you're interested in at the moment? Let me maybe start with a bit of uh, intro about our our investment thesis at um, SpeedInvestX, which stands for Network Effects. So network effects are essentially mechanisms in products and then businesses where every new user makes the product or service more valuable to another user. And um, network effects are really abundant specifically in marketplace type of businesses. Um, Over the course of last years, what we've seen is really the verticalization of marketplaces. So started with more horizontal platforms such as Gumtree or um, Amazon, and then we saw the trend of verticalization. At the moment, vertical marketplaces have a combined value of over a, a trillion globally, which roughly is equal to the market cap of of Amazon. Now, when you actually look into how much of the consumption in each of the verticals in total has been digitized, it's still a fraction. What is more interesting, though, is when you look on the B2B side. So uh, the amount of transactions in, in verticals such as construction, procurement, insurance on the B2B side has been digitized. It's even smaller. So what we've been really excited about when... A lot of the deals that we have done in the network effects team were uh, B2B, B2B marketplaces. Apart from what I mentioned, it's also the fact that the average transactions are much larger on the B2B side. The challenge, though, is that those transactions are quite often more complex, which also requires building a more complex infrastructure so that two businesses can actually see the value in transacting through the platform, not outside of it. One way this this can be done is, for example, through embedding finance into uh, into the platform and embedding fintech into the platform, which is a trend we've been excited about. Um, but but I believe Gunita will be actually the, the best person to to explain it to you from from the fintech angle. So yeah, I would say embedded finance is a big trend that actually lies at the intersection of fintech marketplaces and a lot of different sector areas. In simple terms, embedded finance is the idea of providing financial services capabilities to non-banks. So payments, lending, and insurance, providing that to non-bank companies. Okay, got it. So for those who aren't familiar with the concept of embedded finance, could you please give us a bit of color as to how the functionality came about? So it was only 30 years ago in 1990 that the World Wide Web, the world's first web browser was created by Tim Berners-Lee. And each of the developments that we've had since then have really built on top of the other. So for example, with the web browser in place, four years later, the first commercial browser, Netscape, could be released. 
And as that gained popularity, it became possible to build search engines like Google on top of that. And then six years later, Facebook was founded as an online directory that connects people through social networks, which in turn made us more interconnected, which led to the rise of smartphones and mobile apps. And you saw the launch of the first iPhone, which was followed by the launch of the App Store and the Play Store. So effectively, just as the internet provided the building blocks for social networking websites and mobile apps, so I believe we're now moving towards an era where financial services are providing the building blocks for other applications. And in this new world, a world that is post-financial crisis, where apps have proliferated, where regulators are reducing barriers, for example, to accessing consumer banking data. Basically, we're seeing fintech startups emerging that provide the infrastructure needed for any company to include financial services as a layer of its core product. And these trends are what are making, really making it possible to include financial services such as payments, lending, and insurance in any non-bank company. And that's really the idea of embedded finance, making financial services as we know them today, a core component on which any company can be built. Really interesting. Okay. And could, could you give us a few examples? So well, a company like WhatsApp, which is not a payment company, um, it is a communications company and it's embedding the financial service layer of, of payments into its platform. So that's one example of embedded financial services. Another non-obvious example can, can be a company like Shopify, which we originally know as an e-commerce infrastructure provider. Um, however, now when you look actually into the revenue makeup, it's, it's actually coming, the majority of it is coming from a payment solution. So I think in short, to, to just summarize why we're excited about, about the embedded finance trend, both from the fintech side as well as the marketplaces side, is, um, is the fundamental shift and the benefits that uh, embedded finance brings to platforms. Those are really helpful examples. I, I just wanted to change the topic um, of conversation a little bit. So it's clear you both are, you know, very passionate about technology and how history can help identify these, I guess, nuggets of opportunity. But I'm curious um, to know why you guys think you're well suited to work in VC from a personality perspective? Yeah, I, I would say that it brings a, both sides of my personality together of working with people, but also analyzing things to, to, to greater depth. Mm. Um, yeah, it's certainly something to consider whether it actually suits your personality as well, because you are meeting a lot of people. Um, and if that's something that you don't necessarily enjoy, you find that very draining, then that might potentially you might need to look for a role within VC where that's not necessarily your primary role and it's more of the analytical side. But what's quite nice is that often the traditional position of an associate is that you, you get to do the combination of two things of getting highly analytical into certain subjects such as um, B2B marketplaces and then you get to go hunt for the best ones in the business. So that's really like why I'm personally really interested in it. Um, and to your point, Ganita, of basically getting to sort of stand on the shoulders of giants, you just get this amalgamation of such talented individuals that are using tools from the past developed by such talented individuals that you're always right at the forefront of innovation. And it's it's so exciting. Um, and actually, one thing that I was quite curious to know, and, and it's always a slightly different answer, is um, what are the sort of things that you're looking for 
from a founder's perspective in a, in a business, um, when you're meeting them, have you got a set of criteria that you look for? Um, for example, last week we interviewed uh, Paul from Albion, um, and he was saying that he was looking for approximately 1 million ARR as a sort of metric to be aiming for. Is that something that you do at Speed Invest? Yeah, I, I would say that um, you can look at, there's, there's the traditional framework of market product team. So look at the market uh, opportunity, look at what the founders bring to table um, and um, what the product is that they're building. But I think for me, what I find really important and uh, worked on my own startup and having like looked at what, what um, you know, funds look for is showing how your business is addressing an actual pain point. So yeah. why would customers use you? Because this becomes really important at the later stage as you're trying to commercialize as well and sell um, to, to your customers. Uh, it's really important to be able to demonstrate that hook for customer acquisition or the sales to customers. Great. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. Absolutely. Cannot agree more. Um, and similarly, I would say it's really important to, uh, or what we really look for is an answer to a question, why the specific entrepreneur and why the specific business? So if uh, um, a founder product fits pretty much, and um, especially at early, early stages, it's, um, we look for that edge of a founder. Is that any specific knowledge or any specific experience on really knowing the pain point they're trying, try, trying to solve um, that we also pay attention to? But uh, overall, we, we invest at seed stage, at pre-seed stage, uh, so we do not have formal requirements. Um, we're very, very keen to analyze all sort of different businesses that are looking to raise their first or second institutional round. I think also it's really helpful to understand things from the perspective of a VC fund. So VC funds have a fiduciary duty to deliver returns to LPs, right? And what does that mean? It means that I, as a, an investor in the fund, I have put in, uh, let's say, 50,000, 100,000, whatever it may be, um, for 10 to 20 year time horizon. And I want to somehow know that the people who are managing my money are going to de-risk the investment, but also invest in companies that are going to take off. And therefore, it's really important to think about how can I help demonstrate to the investor why my startup is going to take off and why my startup has commercial potential. Yeah, no, that's a really good point to understand what LPs are expecting. They have picked Speed Invest for a reason, and that is obviously them being able to identify exciting up and coming businesses that are going to give a high return on investment um, and they do this from obviously picking a very good investment team but I believe you also have a project team could you tell us a little bit more about that so it's a team of over 20 operational experts in fields like growth marketing, hiring, business development. We also do have a U.S. office that is not an investment office, but it's an office dedicated for supporting our portfolio companies that want to expand to the U.S. Um, so pretty much, again, focused on that entrepreneurial side, uh, not the investment side. Um, and what is worth mentioning is, is that with the new fund that we have raised, all the support that we're offering is, is equity-free, um, which is a great perk, especially for companies that cannot really afford hiring um, advisors, consultants, or, or even you know people who launch a campaign, test a new market, or perhaps open the door in, in the new market, like like in the US. 
I think what is really actually interesting is to give also a little bit of a background about the history of Speedinvest. Speedinvest was actually founded 10 years ago by a group of Austrian entrepreneurs um, who sold their businesses to VeriSign in the US. After returning to Austria from, from Silicon Valley, they decided to, to set up a VC fund, which was a only $10 million fund. However, very successful. So um, the, the investments that they did uh, 10 years ago were companies you might know, like, for example, Spock or Bitmovin or Tourator, um, which overall attracted over half a billion in, in follow-on funding. This success led them to, to raising the second fund, which was uh, significantly bigger. It was a 90 million euro fund. And now, just before the pandemic, we have actually closed the, the third fund, which is a 200 million euro fund. Well, that is a very exciting announcement. And also, I believe you have another announcement where you have launched a newsletter. Is that right? Uh, thank you so much for the recommendation back, Francesca. That is correct. We do run a monthly newsletter on all Thanks, Network Effects. You can subscribe. We are going to share the links in the podcast bio. Great. Yeah. So that's certainly worth having a read through. So why don't we move into question time, ladies? And we have a question today from Ahmed, who asks, with companies using a lot of data, do you incorporate how companies are incorporating data privacy and responsibility into your due diligence process? Yeah, so I think this is a really thoughtful question. I think um, we've seen startups in the fintech space that are working within uh, data privacy um, meets fintech. And if we were to analyze this startup in further detail, we would potentially do some further due diligence on the tech, tech stack behind, um, behind that. Got it. Thank you, Ahmed, for, for the thoughtful question. And, you know, now you have a, a wonderful um, coffee chat to look forward to with the ladies. Absolutely. Very much looking forward to more challenging questions. Likewise. And I think uh, from, from what I can gather from Ahmed, he is looking for a role. So I was wondering whether you guys are hiring at the moment. Absolutely. So I think both of our teams are hiring. Uh, in our network effects team, we're looking for an associate or a senior associate um, who will be working alongside the team in one of our main offices. So in Vienna, London or Berlin. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're very happy to, to chat to, to candidates, um, especially we would welcome Female applications um, and applications from, from people from diverse backgrounds with interesting stories to tell. Great. And also from your team, Ganita? Yep. So we are hiring for a fintech seed associate um, with a focus on the dark region. So either with the network and or ability to build a network in the region. Amazing. Well, you heard it here first, guys. And any, any top tips? I think for me, I would say demonstrate why you will be an exceptional investor and think from a founder's perspective. So the, the people you invest into are giving up their salary and risking their livelihoods for this. And imagine when you lost sleep over a make or break event or your first big job interview, um, your investment really makes a big impact. And I think it's really helpful to, to think from a, from a founder's perspective. When, when yeah, that's that's really good advice. And Magda, anything from you in terms of your top tips of crawling through windows? That's certainly a good option. Um, any other advice? Certainly. So what, what I would say is what is important is that regardless of your experience, um, one thing that really matters is 
how are you prepared and why do you think you want to join that specific fund? Although it's a very easy question, not many people are able to really answer it in a way that is really convincing. Like, why are you so excited about fintech? What are the trends that um, you're, um, you're excited about? Why network effects? Where do you see the future of network effects? And to, to really demonstrate a fit for the funds. Um, from my own experience, I have to say before being in the industry, I didn't see that much difference between seed funds. They all seem quite similar. But being inside, you can really tell, and I think this is a knowledge you can also get by talking to people, reaching out to people like Gunita did to get into, um, to really learn about what is important for the fund. And also listening to this podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much. Great plug there, Magda. Great plug. My final question is, how do people get in contact with you? So um, if you want to submit a startup pitch to us, you can do this via our website. Um, so we actually have a section on our website that allows you to apply to, to Speed Invest. Um, if you want to get in contact with us personally, uh, there's LinkedIn and Twitter, uh, which I think is a really helpful way to reach us. And I think the reason why the website is also really important for, for startup pitches is because we actually route all of those pitches to the respective sector special focus team within Speed Invest. But you're all very welcome to hit us up on, on LinkedIn directly. Amazing. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. I've had so much fun. Thanks, Francesca. Thanks, Petra. It's been an incredible pleasure chatting with you and uh, really looking forward to listening to all the future episodes. Thanks, Francesca. And thanks, Petra. I've had a great time. And thank you to all our lovely listeners for tuning in. Please do not forget to follow and like um, on our Twitter, which is at associated underscore pod, or drop us an email at associatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, ladies. Also, just a quick one. Do check out our Notion page. We've got some very cool resources on there for both founders and budding VCs. Thanks so much. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye.